Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Alas, Ulster's 14-year wait for silverware continues thanks to the undefeatable, indefatigable three-in-a-row champions of Leicester. We'll discuss the ways and the wherefores of the 27-5 result in the Pro 14 final before turning our attentions to this weekend's European Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinal against Toulouse. With me, Gareth Hanna, to do all that are Jonathan Bradley. Hiya. And Adam McAndrew. Hello. So, not exactly how we... Had for, well, exactly how we had foreseen Saturday night going, but not exactly how we would have liked it to have gone. Probably not all that surprising. Before we get into the match itself, Jonathan, a bigger talking point perhaps was Ulster's team news on Friday uh, at noon, which gave us two shocks, and it was hard to sort of assess which was the bigger shock, Ian Henderson starting or John Cooney not starting. Where did those come from? Well, we talked about... Uh, the possibility of John Cooney anyway last week so I say, guess from that perspective Henderson has to be more surprising Ulster obviously did very well to keep that under wraps aided in no small part I suppose by um, the pandemic and the fact that there's nobody able to watch them training so the fact that he'd been back there and was close um, a lot less eyeballs on that than there might otherwise be um, and I think again I suppose the Cooney thing had been bubbling and then came to a head, really, um, with the team selection. Still, I think, given the reaction that we had to the piece we wrote about it during the week before it happened, to the reaction to the actual decision coming on Friday, I think people find that more shocking still, because I suppose from how this season was panning out before lockdown and the fact that uh, nobody's surprised, really, when Ian Henderson makes a comeback anymore. You say that, but I, like I remember asking at the time, whenever we heard of his this hip surgery, would he be back earlier? And we're all sort of like, well, it's a bit different recovering from a hand injury. This is hip surgery. Adam, how has he managed to do this? Because this is without doubt the most incredible of them all. Well, he, he said to us in midweek last week that any time he's given a diagnosis or he's given a time frame for whenever he's going to come back from an injury, he always questions it himself to say, how quickly can I get back? And I think it's probably that mentality that helps, you know, being able to have that strength within yourself to say, well, they've given me this time frame, I'm going to try and beat that. Now, how well that translates into then actually coming back from the injury is a bit different. But I suppose if you're working hard, if you're doing everything you can during rehab and you're trying things a bit out of the box to try and help yourself get back as quickly as possible, inevitably something might happen that, that will aid your recovery. And with Henderson, it just seems to work. We've seen it before. This is at least the second time, if not the third, that he's been given a long-term time frame to come back from an injury, and he's beaten it, and, he, and he's come back for a big game. So I think he's just one of those guys who's blessed with an incredible ability to heal from from big injuries. And that's something that, you know, Ulster are probably naturally quite conservative with in case they put a six-week time frame on something and it turns out to be actually 12 weeks or something like that and plus it's a nice bonus to have whenever you say you're not going to have Ian Henderson until the start of next season or you probably won't see him until an Ireland game and then all of a sudden he's back for the Pro 14 finals so it's also a nice boost for the team if you put a conservative estimate on and he beats it 
So mm-hmm. I think he's just a guy who's able to come back from injuries really quickly, and he's, he's just a great physical specimen in terms of rugby player. So that just helps with the recovery as well. And it's a fantastic boost for Ulster to have him back. I know he wasn't able to get the result in the right direction at the mm-hmm. weekend, but just even to have him back and to have him among the team and to be able to lead the team out to, at the Aviva was massive. Is this a tactic we're seeing from Ulster rugby now, Jonathan, and overestimating recovery timeframes in terms of that boost for their own team and then the adverse effect on the opposition team if you can say like ah gotcha he's actually playing well I know obviously that they wanted to keep it they wanted to surprise Leinster with their team use obviously which is why you know you don't see Ulster issue the kind of statements that Leinster do of a Tuesday where they'll say so and so is available so and so might be available and so and so is not available, like Ulster are never as clear cut as that. But in terms of putting an estimate on it, it's not in order to psych out the opposition or anything like that. It's because an awful lot of the time, if a doctor says he'll be back in six weeks and he's back in eight weeks, or he's back in six weeks and he's back in seven weeks, then people complain about the timetable. And then it's the doctors getting it in the neck. And it's been said to me numerous times that that's a huge part of why they don't even like to talk about injuries. It's not as much, obviously, a big deal to made about the sort of GDPR aspect of it in recent times. And certain players not wishing to have that kind of thing discussed. But Mm. from what I've been told, certainly from an Ulster perspective rather than an Ireland-wide perspective, it's as much to do with the fact that... um, it's protect, protecting the uh, the people who are giving these estimates as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. So on the pitch, how big a boost did Ian Henderson prove for Ulster, and just how did he come back at him after after so long away? What was his showing like for you? I thought in the first half he was excellent. Um, I really did. I, I thought he came in. He got stuck in physically. There are a few great carries, and one of the big things was they didn't shy away from giving him the ball. This wasn't a case of it was a symbolic uh, kind of bringing him back. It was very much, you know, Ian Henderson is back to play, and he had a few carries early. He he was heavily involved, Um, and I I think that was the main thing. You know, he led from the front, and that was what sort of got Ulster off to a good start, um, combined with a few Leinster mistakes. And obviously he was going to flag at some point. You know, it was his first game back since lockdown, which meant it was his first game in, what, four or five months. So obviously there was going to be that that bit of fatigue. But the fact that Ulster even managed to get him to play part of the second half is an achievement in itself because, you know, they were obviously very cautious with him. They were trying to make sure that they didn't overextend him in his first game back, even if it was the final but certainly, I think, whenever you sort of look at him and James Ryan coming back on the other side for Leinster, I think it's hugely positive both for the provinces heading into Europe this week and for Ireland looking into the into the Autumn Six Nations or the Autumn Eight Nations, sorry, as it is, that both of them really, you know, stood up. They both put in a great work rate. Ryan put in a lot of tackles. Henderson was uh, a lot more active with ball in hand. So I think Henderson certainly came through it well, no adverse effects. Um, so I, I think Ulster will be very pleased mm-hmm. at how he came through the game and they'll certainly be hoping that he can maybe go a bit further this week against Toulouse. 
Jonathan, what about John Cooney then? The, the other surprise, we had talked about it, as you said last week, we knew it was a possibility, but probably the, the general consensus amongst ourselves and amongst uh, us rugby fans was that there was no way John Cooney was going to get left out of a, a Pro 14 starting side. How big a shock was it for you and, and did it prove the right call in the end? I know it probably wouldn't have mattered either way in terms of the result. Who started really, but... Um, do you think it proved the right result? Or the right well, Dennis Harden was um, pretty blunt about it. I think if you just saw what he said on TV come Saturday, I think he was obviously sick of being asked about it come uh, 10, 20 minutes before kickoff. But um, certainly whenever he was speaking to us on Friday, um, he was quite upfront about it. He said, look, this is the hardest selection that I've ever been involved in, not at Ulster, but in my coaching career. So that's going back and doing an awful lot of selection meetings. But basically what it came down to was him saying that Albie Matthewson was playing the better rugby and in a final, that's what you had to go with. You know, you had to go with the hot hand. I thought Matthewson early on had a decent enough decent enough game. I thought he kept, um, kept Leinster guessing just with his willingness to break down the side of the rock, go down the short side. I thought that was where Ulster added a bit of variety into their attack which is what you need against a team like Leinster and I think we saw that especially as the game wore on where Ulster's attack probably became less varied and just how frequently Leinster were able to get 14 and 15 men in their defensive line. I thought Matthewson in those sort of probably say half, first half an hour say just gave something something different in that regard so I don't think it was a case of um I don't think he had a bad game. Like as you said, I think it would have mattered in the end whether it was whether it was Matthewson or Kenny because I don't think either of them are gonna bridge uh, what was it in the end? Twenty yeah, twenty two points. Yeah. So just very quickly as well, Johnny, before we leave the, the team news last week, you and Michael probably got the vast majority of the team right, but one that you probably couldn't have foreseen was Jordy Murphy being dropped to the bench rather than Matthew Ray. What was the thinking behind that one? No, that was actually, yeah, that was the one that by Friday morning I still didn't have. The rest of them had become apparent by that stage. But mm-hmm. uh, e- even thinking that I had the team, I was still surprised not to <laughs> see not to see Jordan. And again, I think it's the same thing. I think Matty Ray has played pretty well uh, since coming out of lockdown. Um, especially, I think his line out work probably goes a bit underappreciated, given the fact that. Um, Ulster haven't got the same reward out of their mall, but I think he's played pretty well. And Jordy's maybe just come out a little bit quiet. And I think um, exactly the same logic behind it for a final, a one-off game. Um, against a side like Lancer, you almost have to go with the hot hand because otherwise you're going to end up in a position where you know you don't want to die wandering, as it were, in a game like that. And I think Ulster didn't, ultimately, because their selection calls were bold. I thought... You know, they fired a shot on, like, um, some teams that we've seen against Leinster, but in the end, they just weren't good enough. But I think, as has been said, most notably by Ian Henderson and McFarland as well, that if you go into a game like that and you do fire a shot and you're still not good enough, then the only tangible benefit is that it shows you once again where that benchmark is, and that's what Leinster have done. Hmm. I, th- I think you do have to give McFarland quite a lot of credit for making those bold calls, especially in a final, because there were... It would have been so easy for him to go in and select Jordy Murphy, Jack McGrath, Marty Murr, uh, John Cooney purely on the basis of 
uh, they've been there and done that, rather than going with the guys who are in form. But as Johnny said, whenever you come into a final, especially against Leicester, you've got to go with your form team. And he really doubled down on that. He did bring in you know, the two props who had done well against Edinburgh. He was rewarded because Tom Wuttall, I thought, had one of his best games in an Ulster jersey, let alone since lockdown. I thought he was brilliant. I think Matty Ray has been the better back row uh, as opposed to Jordy Murphy. And then Matthewson, again, I don't think there was anything that Cooney could have done in that game that would have given Ulster, you know, a 22 extra points that would have turned things around. Mm-hmm. So credit to McFarland in his first final as a head coach. You have to remember making some big calls whenever he needed to. The result didn't go his way this time, but I, I back what he did. I, I think he made the right calls as head coach on this occasion. So, Johnny, the game itself, where was this final one for Leinster, lost for Ulster, other than just uh, across all 15 positions? I think it was what we spoke about last week, what we'd singled out, I think, as our number one key to the game, whenever we did the five key to the cases of the game, was the championship minutes. You've seen in the semi-final against Munster that Leinster essentially win games or change the complexion of games in the five to ten minutes either side of half time and it's like it feels bad that you're singling out two mistakes by the same player but those moments from Billy Burns the one pass that went into James Hume's feet when if it had it went to hand yeah. basically a worst case scenario also would have had Stockdale running at Gibson Park in a best case scenario that they had a three on two with little Mike Laurie and Stockdale against Gibson Park and Lowe, so you would have bagged them to work that into a try from there. And you get so few opportunities against a defence as good as Leinster, but that was the glaring one that they left behind. So instead of being 10-10 at halftime, it's 10-5 at halftime. Five minutes after halftime, you have Ross Byrne quite cleverly buys the penalty of uh, Sean Reedy, I think it was that one, wasn't it? Um, yep. And then knocks that over to make it <laughs> to extend it out to an eight point game. And then, genuinely, 90 seconds of gameplay later, you've got the intercept with Henshaw picking up Burns' pass. He's onto the post. And at that point, the game's over. So, you know, if you freeze frame the game at whatever that was, 37 minutes or something, whenever Matthewson picks up the ball, um, McCluskey makes his dummy run to freeze Ross Byrne and Billy Burns has the space to get the ball to Hume who then all he has to do is draw the man and force the three on two I say all like it's simple you know I understand it's not but um, if you freeze it there to then say that basically nine minutes of gameplay later it's going to be a three score game you're sort of scratching your head being like well how did that happen and that's what Leinster do better than any club side in the world those championship minutes mm-hmm. and another thing that I would pick out as Leinster doing as well as any club side in the world and probably better than most international sides is their work between the five metre lines and the try lines both their own and the opposition's so you look at you know that moment as an example but I think the other one was when Andrew Porter got over put over the ball and won the turnover off uh, James Hume like Leinster go to a different level 
in the shadow of their own posts and in the shadow of your posts. Mm -hmm. So you compare that one where Porter won the turnover to James Lowe's try, and Leinster would defend, or Ulster had to defend for about three minutes continuously bar the line out before James Lowe's try. And it felt inevitable at that point that they were so close that they were going to score. Whereas when Leinster are defending, it doesn't feel inevitable that the opposition is going to score. And it almost mm. feels inevitable that they're going to pull out a big, big mm. moment to just completely swing the momentum. And that's what they got with that Porter turnover, which I, re- I, like, I really thought that that moment was massively, massively important in the context of the game. Secondary only to that um, opportunity to force the overlap, which also didn't take. Mm. So time to slot in the weekly Donal, Adam. You can address this one. So a good talking point, as always, from Donal. He, he says that when Marcel and Handy were subbed off, Leinster stopped supplying a breakdown. So there's a 14-man wall ahead of us, and we prioritise running over tactical kicking. The kicking from Burns and McCluskey has been Ulster's strengths all season, so why depart from that tactic, especially when two of the best ball carriers had left the field? He says it's not a criticism, but just a look forward. Uh, I think it is an interesting point, because I completely agree, Ulster did stop kicking the ball in the second half, and they didn't actually do too much of it in the first half either. Um, And I think it was a case of, in the second half, they just felt like they needed possession. I felt like they just really felt like they had to keep hold of the ball and try and wear Leinster down. Eventually the gaps would open up and they'd be able to run through and potentially score. But all they did was keep running into a blue wall of defence and all they were doing was going back and forth across the pitch. And that was how Leinster basically were able to see the game out. All they knew they had to do was keep that 15-man defence or 14-man, just have guys springing up from the ruts, have guys back in position, ready to go, and just keep knocking Ulster back. And as long as they did that, Ulster would eventually make the mistake. And not only would that end Ulster's attack, but it would give Leinster field position. So it was sort of a double-edged sword. So I, I think it was interesting that Ulster didn't kick. I I personally would have liked to have seen them try to kick. I know Ian Madigan tried one crossfield kick for James Hume, which if it had come off probably would have actually given them quite a good chance down the wing, but he just overhead it a bit. But there's just such a such a lack of variation in Ulster's attack that it was just so easy for Leinster to defend, and that's not taking away from how good defensively Leinster were. But, you know, Ulster, I, I would love to know exactly how many metres they made in the second half because it can't have been too many because every time someone trucked it up the middle, there were at least two Leinster defenders waiting for them. And then every time it come back out, there were another two Leinster defenders waiting for the next guy. It was just relentless. And it eventually just became very easy for Leinster to see the game out in the second half. I, I just feel like they felt they needed to hold on to possession. It, it probably comes back to um, the same point that Johnny made, where uh, you know Ulster, whenever they went eight points behind, probably felt to themselves that they need. They were a bit further behind than what they actually were. If you're eight points behind any other team, you maybe wouldn't panic quite so much. But whenever you're eight points behind Leinster, you feel like you're quite far behind. So they just held on to possession a lot more, but it just wasn't working for them. Mm. Well, let's rewind and look at uh, happier moments for Ulster a few minutes into the game when it looked like you never know, they might be onto something here. 
uh, that James Hume try, of course. So before we talk about it, here's what he had to say yesterday whenever he faced the media. It's taken me these four games. Like I don't think I played well really in the Connacht game. Leinster was all right. And then I kind of hit the ground running at Edinburgh. And then Leinster was personally a decent performance, but obviously that's not, uh, that's not the outcome we wanted, so it doesn't really matter. A lot of the positive stuff that we took from Leinster, that's, that's the stuff we do well usually. But there's just been a couple of weeks in a row now where we've, we've missed opportunities and we're seeing those in video. So we really we had a couple of meetings this morning about really knuckling down on those, about taking our opportunities a bit more and being more ruthless against bigger sides because you know we missed quite a few opportunities against Leinster. Maybe that the, the public didn't see or anything, but when we reviewed them on video that we could have easily taken the edge and you know stressed them a lot more. So that'll be areas for us to work on against like Leinster, um, who are a great side, and obviously Toulouse, the French Giants in the European Cup. So, Johnny, that try uh, and James Hume's performance in general, how big bonuses were there for Ulster the try? Of course, like in a different result, that would be remembered uh, for years to come. It will be anyway, but had Ulster won that, like that goes down as a real top classic Ulster moment, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a super try. Um, and you're 100% bang on. I think that's remembered as a, a truly great try if it comes in that context, but in a winning effort. I thought the because it had so many good elements to it. Like, I suppose first of all, you had the quick ball that was generated in the previous breakdown through the awareness of Mike Lowry of coming back on side, diving in a scrum half because Matheson wasn't there. Then off the next breakdown, you have the pullback pass from Alan O'Connor, which is something we've spoken about before and something that I don't think you see. From Alan O'Connor three or four years ago, he probably takes contact, but he's just upskilled himself in such a way that um, he's now really, really good at doing that. Um, or you had the very well-timed decoy run from Tom O'Toole, which froze the defence a wee bit. And then from that point, it's all Jane Tune because you've got just to get the gas to leave Kelleher for dead. Now, obviously, it's a centre against the hooker, so he shoot, but... Um, really sort of left him, left him in his trail there. Then you've got the awareness to take that sort of hitch step to go past James Lowe and then the fend of Hugo Keenan. So there was just an awful lot of really, really good elements to it. Um, I thought he had a super game. I would agree with Adam. I thought Tom O'Toole was really good as well. And I think if you're looking for a positive from that, then those two players, Mike Lowry, Rob Little, had a few, a few really good moments. Maybe some not so good moments as well but like those I suppose four guys Matty Ray throw him in there as well five you know five guys are all far better than they were this time last year contributing far more than they were this time last year and need to really carry that on I suppose for Ulster to talk about bridging that gap because the fact of the matter is I like to take Hugh Minotil as an example who probably McCluskey aside, were Ulster's best players. Well, as good as they were, Hume wasn't the best 13 on the pitch. Um, O'Toole wasn't the best tight head on the pitch. And we're not talking about guys that are old here either, when you're talking about Gary Ringrose and Andy Porter. So they have to keep on keep on getting better and better and better to get to that standard. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously uh, takes takes a good bit of work because you're talking about real, real quality players there. 
but, yeah. the, but the youth is the youth is still a good thing for Ulster. The fact that they do still have a very young profile. Johnny's right. You know, O'Toole was outplayed by Porter. Hume was outplayed by Ringrose. But at the same time, if you look at Ulster squad as a whole, they're still a young squad. There's yeah. still a very youthful dynamic to them, and they do have to learn. Now, I'm not big on using the whole youth as an excuse for not winning a final. You know, I feel like if a team's good enough, they, they will win a game. But at the same time, this is great experience for them, being in a final, seeing what's required in a one-off knockout game for Silverware to get over the line. They'll have learned a great deal from how Leinster smothered them, from how Leinster, as Johnny put perfectly, how Leinster dominated the championship minutes, how they made sure that they really turned the game on its head whenever those minutes counted and were then able to coast home in the second half. So if Ulster come out of this with anything, it's a hope that you know these guys are a, a knockout game more experienced and that they have that desire to go forward and not feel like that again. I noticed at the end of the game that Ulster stayed out to watch Leinster lift the trophy. Now, that could be out of respect, and I would say it probably is out of respect, but I also hope that it is a case of they were looking at that to say, this time next year, we don't want to be the ones standing here watching this again. We want to be the ones lifting the trophy next time. We don't want to feel this pain, Mm. this hurt of coming so close but falling at the final hurdle again. And I think that's something that they really need to take forward, especially going into Europe as well, where we do have to remember they still have a chance of actually winning silverware this season. As small as it may be, they do still have the chance. So you've got to try and carry that experience and that hurt forward to make sure that you're not just going through the same emotions every single time you get to the knockouts of the season. There's no doubt that that youth coming through now is such a huge positive and something that is exciting looking forward to the next few years for Ulster. But I think it was Rory O'Connor, our, one of our colleagues at the Irish Independent, who wrote after the game that there are players probably coming through or not too old currently in the current Ulster and Monster setups that could come the end of their careers, retire without any silverware because their careers happen to be unfortunate enough to be coinciding with this Leinster side, such as the dominance that this Leinster team are embarking on, John. And how how much do you agree with that? Or how much is that a, a worry that this is what Ulster are going to have to beat and this Leinster team aren't going away anytime soon, it doesn't look like? I don't agree with it as being a negative. I agree with it as just being the reality. Like, if you are growing up, or growing up, if you are playing in the era of Tiger Woods, don't moan about playing in the era of Tiger Woods. Make yourself Phil Mickelson. If you're playing in the era of Federer and Nadal, don't just throw your hands up and say, well, what's the point? Be Andy Murray, win three open, or three open titles, you know? And that's the reality for Ulster because like, you can look at Leinster and say, oh, well, they're too good. And maybe over the course of a season they are, because you're not going to have... It's going to be impossible for you to ever have as many good players as they do in, say, this generation. To fix, to redress that balance is a generational thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have 55 players as good as Leinster's best 55 players. You have to have 23 best players, because the nature of this competition is that you only have to beat them once. 
Like Leinster finished 25 points ahead of Ulster in a bridge season. That was the gap over what was only 15 games because they have essentially two different teams. Mm. But Ulster don't have to worry about that. If you can get to the final and play them in a final, then you just have to make sure that your 23 best guys can go toe-to-toe with their 23 best guys because they can only play 23 in a final. And I suppose it's easy to lose sight of that given that that was a 20 two-point game and you're looking at it and thinking cheaper side of it but then you look at last year and you go well Ulster should have beaten them on that day it's just a matter of catching them on that off day rather than catching them as you say Adam whenever they're putting in one of the best defensive performances ever seen um, it, it probably helps things but it's well, a very different game if like you take your chances we said before that yeah. they were perfect and they weren't perfect like if like I heard people talking about the penalties I don't agree with that I think you had to score tries because they were going to score tries but even if you take it as you know seven points in that sort of 15 minute period where you were on top for half time and the conversion of the first try that's nine points so if you're going in at half time and it's 14 to 10 then that's a very different game and you probably start to force things a little bit or so you don't start to force things because you're ahead. Like I thought the intercept was probably the product of being eight points down, but eight points against Leinster feeling like it's more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see things like probably everybody trying to get a little bit too flat. There wasn't enough depth to the play at that stage, and it was pretty much easy pickings for Henshaw, to be honest, because there was so yeah. little difference in the depth between the dummy run and Kasia. But that was what we talked about before. That's what... Dan Farland will have been talking about afterwards. Yeah. Again, it's a yardstick. Like, it's small margins because it's easy to forget, I think, and you have to strike the right balance between remembering of how much of a game that seemed at halftime and how much it didn't seem like a game at all six minutes after halftime. Yeah. You know, that, that's how fine it is, and that's the experience that you have to take from it. But then the danger is that you do have to actually learn the lesson because, you know, we would have said the same things in 2012 when they get steamrolled by Leinster and you're like well you know this is a young team it's mm-hmm. going to learn how to win these games and they will and then the nature of professional rugby careers is that that window was actually closed before anybody really realised yeah well look what you're telling me here what I'm taking from this is that there's a chance of seeing Michael Lowry lifting the European Cup in years to come that's what we're taking from this there is hope Gareth, if you, if you had your way, you would have Michael Lowry lifting the cup with one hand and Robert Bowerkey oh, lifting it with the oh, other. Stop, stop. We might have to stop here to like impose myself. We can while I do that, actually, we can throw in a little bit of Ian Henderson's audio because it was very interesting hearing what he said after the game, just in terms of how much this uh, Leinster threat over the coming years is in, uh, in Ulster's heads, particularly on Saturday whenever it came into such great focus. So here's a little bit from the Ulster captain. Yeah, I think something that... that um, it's probably a bit of a realisation is Leinster are continually getting better Leinster haven't didn't peak five years ago and have just stayed there Leinster get better and better year on year every year we get better Leinster get better uh, so we've got to make sure that we're always trying to close that gap always trying to, to get better at a, a quicker rate than, than they're getting better um, we, they showed tonight and they've showed all season that they're the, the dominant force in this league and that's something that we we're striving to do. We want to continue to play in, in 
knockout games. Um, that, that, that's something, unfortunately, in this competition we're going to have to wait for. So a couple of our listener questions are uh, fairly on topic here for what we're, we're currently discussing. Andy Wilson, first of all, asks, what's next for Ulster? Do we need to go out and recruit three or four more players to get the Lancers level? Or do we need players who don't have the fear whenever uh, we go and play Leinster? And Kenny Gadd asks, why are Leinster praised for playing 54 players in a season when other teams don't have that many players? So, Jonathan, I think you're going to kill two birds with one stone in this one. The 54 players, well, I think they get praised for having that many players that can play at this level. Like, the 54 players, you know, the 54th best Ulster player is playing in All-Ireland League 1B. Whereas the 54th best Leinster player is able to play at a good standard in the Pro 14. Like, you've got what? Lowe, Gibson Park, Henshaw, Cronin and Fardy. Those are the five that didn't come through their system. I may be forgetting somebody, but I think that's it. And the, interest, the interesting thing that I find about that number of players playing for Leinster is the fact that, yes, they use so many players in the Pro 14 and more players than anybody else. I think also use 43 or 44. But... Leinster actually have used the least amount of players, 44, yeah, Leinster have used the least amount of players in the Champions Cup. So they've only used 31 and they've had 15 players playing all six games so far. So essentially they have two different squads, really. Yeah. You know, they've got 23 players that have played for them in the Pro 14 that haven't played in the Champions Cup mm-hmm. and they're probably going to win both. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> and the fact that they've produced them all through their own pathways is incredible. It is incredible. So I think that's, I think that's why they get praised for it, for basically having a surplus of players that's able to win or at least finish top of the conference in the Pro 14 like obviously yeah. you know the heavy hitters came back in over the past two weeks and that, that's all not even taken into account the Leinster players who are playing for Ulster and <laughs> other provinces yeah, yeah exactly because you've got the, another sort of 15 players probably there in that the tier so you're talking about having 70 other players really, <laughs> um, which is incredible so that's that's why they get praised for that I suppose um, to talk about how Ulster bridge that gap of whether it's imports or whether it's a mental block. I don't know. I don't know if I agree about with them having a mental block against Leinster. It's interesting, I think, because something that I was maybe thinking of asking Dan about later on at the presser is, like, is it a different mental challenge to play, not Leinster, but to play a team similar to one they'll be playing this weekend where you know you can't make a mistake? You know, you compare it to the semi-final against a good Edinburgh team. Ulster could make mistakes for 65 minutes and still win that game, whereas you can't do that against Leinster. And you know maybe that plays into the mental, the mental aspect of it. And in terms of going out and getting three or four players, I think it's a combination. Like you look at what Monster did. Now bear in mind that that did take, by all accounts, outside investment, uh, private investment, to get those signings over the line. Like Ulster have could see it in that class. So of course to get two, you know, to get two more could see would be transformative to the team. But you also need those players that we talked about before and the likes of Sexton, Doak, Reed, Crothers, McCann, Stewart. Those sort of, what's that, six? Those six guys that are really highly touted in the academy at the minute. You need the, those guys to all be hits because, mm-hmm. you know, you look at somebody like Keelan Doris or Will Connors. You know, who was talking about those guys this time last year? So in the time that it takes for like those guys to come through, Leinster will have produced probably three crops. And if any of them don't make it, then the next guy, you know, whoever, the next guy that we haven't heard of already playing in the Leinster Schools Cup this year, in three years' time will be Caelan Doris. That's the reality of it. Yeah. So you need 
basically all those guys that you're hopeful about need to be good to very good players and then when you're talking about bringing in three or four players they need to be of Kutsia quality they need to be of Steinman quality they need to be of Dialande quality but the reality of the situation is that costs a lot of money at a time when teams aren't making money because they haven't got anybody in the stands exactly so that, that could prove fairly difficult in an, an uncertain world um so let's move on then to the game against Toulouse this weekend. It's easy to forget that we actually have a European quarterfinal coming up. It just seems like everything's gone flat after the Pro 14 final debate. But here we are. So if we take a little look, first of all, Jonathan, about Toulouse, what can we expect from them? Yeah, well, you go from playing one of what the certainly the five best teams in Europe to playing one of the other five best teams in Europe. I think they're opening at 11-point under underdogs for the second week in a row which must be some kind of recent record anyway especially um, in knockout games yeah, yeah. yeah definitely Toulouse are only back two weeks and in their first game had two players sent off so difficult to take too much from their recent stuff but um, even very very quickly since coming out of lockdown they look very much like the side that we saw certainly in Europe last year and the year before and in winning the top 14 the year before rather than say it's very difficult because this is last season for France and this season for Ulster if that makes sense so basically Toulouse were not going well in what was their last season having to finish champions but what would be this season for Ulster um, needlessly, convoluted, needlessly complicated there but um, coming out um, so far they've scored some incredible tries I'm sure if you're into your rugby enough to be listening to us waffle on about it, then you've certainly seen them by an eye. Um, some of the tries that they've scored the past two weeks. Obviously, Cheslin Colby, uh, everybody knows about him, and he's got off to a flyer again. Two great tries last week against the La Rochelle of old pal John O'Gibbs. And yeah, they're just like, they've got a brilliant backline, they're class to watch, and they've got one of the biggest packs in European rugby. But apart from that, like you can get at them. <laughs> Adam, who do you think are the, the key ones that Ulster really need to be looking ahead for? Well, start with the obvious one, Cheslin Colby. You know, the guy's got electric feet. He's about five foot nothing, but that just means he can duck under tackles and get over the line before you even notice he's past you. Um, but the, this is the thing, you know, if you put too much emphasis on Colby, then they'll just strike you in other areas. Roman Antomac is a phenomenal player, whether, whether you start him at 10 or 12, he can run the game from either spot. Antoine Dupont at 9, Dan McFarland called him the best 9 in the world. I maybe wouldn't quite agree with that, but he's still a top, top operator. Um, Jerome Kaino in the back row, Kaino, Kaino, however you want to pronounce it, uh, in the back row is a real excellent ball carrier. Um, you look at the Arnold brothers in the second row, uh, Joe Takori, Charlie Famoina, a tight head prop, Julian Marchand, a hooker. I basically named their starting lineup there, <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's, the amount, that's the amount of quality they have. Yeah. And th- this is the thing that Ulster have to look out for. They have threats all over the pitch. And the thing is, if Ulster aren't good at shutting down their offloading game, then they can find holes in that defence mm. so easily. And that's not specifically the Ulster defence, but if, if you give anybody in that team enough room to find an offload, then they are lethal. Because one thing that Toulouse do so well is they have great running lines 
and support. So whenever a guy goes into contact, you'll usually find that nobody from Toulouse is just standing still or nobody will immediately attack the ruck from Toulouse. Usually you'll have at least one guy running some kind of line that if the player on the ground or in the tackle can manage to get the offload away, he's always got a guy on his shoulder to try and keep the attack going, stay away from the breakdown as much as possible, try and keep the ball alive and try and get over the line as quickly as possible in the least phases as possible because that's where... That's where Toulouse really operates so well in generating that quick ball and keeping the ball alive and keeping it running. And that's how you get guys like Colby, like Ramos, like Sofiane Gitoun in that back line. That's how you get those guys really into their prime in that back line. So that's where Ulster have to watch out. If they can slow the ball down a bit, try and play it at their tempo rather than letting Toulouse really pick up the game as much as possible. I think that's where they have a chance. And honestly, I think one of the places that Ulster probably could strike, and which is why I think you might see Sam Carter start this week, is in the mall. You saw La Rochelle getting a bit of traction last week. Uh, I think Pierre Bergerit got over for a try from the mall uh, at the Ernest Vallon last week. So if Ulster can get their mall going, um, then I think that's somewhere that they could possibly strike, especially if they get it back to the level that they had against Edinburgh. And for me, that's why Carter starts, because I think he's brought that sort of dominant Brumbies methodology from the mall over to Ulster. And if they can get that going and they can get a bit of traction there, then that's maybe an area that they try to utilise and really strike from. I love that a John O'Gibbs coached uh, La Rochelle side. We're trying to take them on in the mall. <laughs> it worked though. Like that, that's the thing. It worked. Forge when matches made. What do you want to ask me about Jacob Stockdale for? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that neatly brings us on to Ulster's team selection, John. And anywhere else that you would see changes coming in, could John Cooney come back in, or is this? Uh, does he have to wait it out now? I think he could definitely come back in. You know, part of it will be horses for courses. Yeah. And. Um, the way that John Cooney plays, you know, a lot's said about how it's a very French style. Uh, could be a good game for him. Also, his goal-kicking ability, obviously, you know, you don't want to put too big a glare on it, given that it was only two points. But I know there was a lot made um, in the television commentary during the game about Ulster not having a recognised goal-kicker with Billy Burns and just how infrequently he'd, um, he'd kicked during the season. So Cooney is obviously the better goal-kicker. Sorry, um, can, I, can, I, can I just make a point there? I don't get all this criticism of Burns kicking at all. Like, he misses one, he misses one from the touchline, which is a really tough kick. You can't blame him for that, in my opinion. But the fact that he hasn't kicked all goals all season, he's been practicing his kicking. He's not, you know, been sitting down all season just practicing his loose play. He has been practicing his kicking. He is a goal kicker in the past. He's kicked some clutch kicks for Ulster last season. So I don't get all this criticism of Ulster not having a proven goal kicker in the team. I think they have plenty of goal kickers in the team. I don't, I don't think taking Cooney out completely eradicates Ulster's ability to kick goals. Well, if John, I, Cooney, I was, if John Cooney wasn't their best goal kicker, then he wouldn't be their goal kicker. So. Well, no, that's, that's true. No, that, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, he, he John is Cooney, better. John, yeah, John Cooney is their best goal kicker. But to say that Ulster's ability to kick penalties or conversions has dramatically decreased because Cooney's not on the pitch, I think is a wild over-exaggeration because Burns is still an accomplished goal kicker. Cooney is better, but it does, taking him out of the team doesn't mean Ulster can't kick goals anymore, which is certainly what 
a lot of people were almost suggesting was the case. So, anywhere else, team changes that, like that you would particularly expect, or is it just the case of seeing who's uh, bounced back okay from last week and good to go yeah, again? Yeah, exactly, because look at, you know, we sort of flagged this up when the schedule was talked about. Like, if you kept winning games, then you were going to have an awful lot of games on the bounce. So I think you have to look at the possibility of, it's early in the week, but you have to look at the possibility of freshening things up because a lot of guys have played an awful lot of rugby on the spin. For Ulster, more so than anybody else because Ulster didn't have a game where they played a dummy team. Yeah. Or not a dummy team, but like... <laughs> a shopping, shopping terminology. Yeah, a wholly changed team in the way that... Leinster were able to, you know, the English teams, for example, are playing like third string sides midweek for uh, just for the sake of getting games in. So, and France have only been back two weeks. So all the other teams in this competition haven't had the same road here as Ulster have had over the same month, or or, sorry, over the past month. So there's going to be a big temptation to change it around, especially if you're looking at players where McFarland will have said that the selection calls for last week were very tight anyway. Yeah. Well, look, time will tell on that one. We'll find out when the team is announced on Friday. But, Adam, before then, is there any chance Ulster can win this? Or is it just the case that everything was put into last weekend and be a miracle for a result here, wouldn't it? Well, I I think... The fact that you saw Marcel Katsia go off so early and we know he wasn't 100% uh, firing fit last week. But the fact that he came off so early and you got Henderson off early enough so he can can maybe stretch it out to 80 this week, maybe not. But he'll definitely be able to go a bit longer than 50 minutes this week. You do have a chance. I mean, again, it's another game where you almost have to be perfect, if not just a slightly bit off to win this game um, because you know Toulouse are going to score tries. You can, you can put any team's defence, I'd say even Leinster's defence would struggle to limit them to to less than two tries because they're just so good at being clinical in the red zone. They've got such a great pace about them. Um, their offloading game is superb. And even if they don't get their backs working, you know they still have that massive pack. They're able to go directly through you. If, uh, if the offloading game doesn't work. So I think Ulster will take a lot from last week's game, both in terms of how well they're able to control good teams. You know, you've got to remember, Ulster, for the most part, held Leinster out for 80 minutes. Okay, uh, Doris gets under the posts and Lowe gets over in the first half. But for the majority of that game... Ulster didn't concede a try where Leinster put significant pressure on them and then got over. You know, Henshaw's intercept cut is born out of Ulster trying to play too much chasing the game. But the other tries, you know, I, I think if you told Ulster going into that game, Leinster will concede two tries, or sorry, Leinster will score two tries purely from good pressure that they exert, Ulster would probably have taken that. If they can put in another good defensive performance, like that again, then I think I think Toulouse's defence is not going to be as resolute as Leinster's was. Gaps can open up, and Ulster could potentially find some gaps that they could uh, that they could exploit, especially in the backs, because as good as Toulouse's backs are at attacking, defensively 
they are able to be opened up. But again, I can't emphasize enough, you know, they've got to be at least on 95%, if not 100%, to win this game, uh, especially going away to a stadium where they're going to have fans. It's going to be an all-to-lose crowd. Um, you know they're going to make a lot of noise purely because they're able to be back in the stadium. So it's going to be a massive test, but it's not impossible. I'll say that much. Well, that's pretty much us for this week. We will, of course, have lots more pre-match build-up, our live blog during the match and post-match reaction online in the Belfast Telegraph and in the Sunday Life. And then we'll be back with another podcast next week, which will either be... A little look back at the 1920 season, or who knows, it could be a preview for a European semi final. So, until then, from Jonathan Bradley, cheers, thank you, Anna McHenry, cheers, guys, and myself, Gareth Hanna, thanks for listening.